You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In our previous discussion, we focused on the two basic questions that the Church Fathers encountered in the development of the Church's doctrine on the Trinity and on the Incarnation, what we have referred to as the Trinitarian question and then the Christological question. And with regard to the question of the Incarnation, this is the area that many of the studies of the Church Fathers have necessarily focused upon. It was a great question, how the two natures of the one divine person of Jesus Christ could both be affirmed and at the same time maintaining the unity of his personhood. In this lecture, I would like to broaden the discussion a little bit to focus on Christ's saving work according to the Fathers. And we focus on this view of Christ because, first of all, a true picture of the Fathers would show that they were primarily interested in Christ's saving work and its effect. Remember in the introductory lecture, we stress the pastoral emphasis of the Church Fathers. And while the threats from Arianism in particular, and adoptionism, and modalism, and monarchianism, all forced the clarification of the Christological teaching of the Church, Nevertheless, the Fathers continued to focus on theology done in media ecclesiae. And of course, the pastoring of which they were so intimately involved had to do primarily with the reality of Christ's saving work and how this reality impacted particularly and specifically upon the people they were privileged to shepherd. So, therefore, a true picture of their interest in Christ has to do with this question of his saving work. Also, they developed their theology of the Incarnation in function of the doctrine of salvation, not mainly for the sake of speculative truth about Jesus Christ. Remember, the Church Fathers were not academics in the modern understanding of that word. They didn't speculate upon the Incarnation to be an end in itself, but it always served as the handmaiden of the doctrine of salvation. And they saw the doctrine of the Incarnation and the doctrine of salvation as closely linked, and they often took positions on who and what Jesus is only in relation to his saving work. Also, in the Fathers, we should distinguish two aspects or approaches in their writing. First of all, their expression of the traditional faith concerning the mystery of God's saving plan and the saving work of Christ. And secondly, their theological explanations or theories concerning this mystery. And here, as I mentioned previously, they were trailblazers, they were forerunners. And at times, they didn't get everything right in their theological explanation or theory, but taken as a whole, 
they contributed greatly to the development of Christian doctrine. With regards to the traditional faith handed down through the creeds, the baptismal formulae, the liturgical rites, of course, they continued to affirm and confirm lex orende est lex credendi. Their theological explanation or theories, in contrast to their traditional faith, or their expression of the traditional faith, were not always worked out in neat systems. Often, several themes or images come together within the context of one work, be it a exegetical commentary on a book of scripture, be it a series of catechetical instructions, or a homily delivered on an important liturgical occasions. So, if they did not write what we would call classical textbooks in a systematic way as became the practice in the medieval and later church eras, where is this patristic material on Christ's saving work to be found? No treatise deals exclusively with this mystery, although many patristic texts treat of it. In this area, more than in others, one sees the importance of patristic presentations in liturgy, in catechetics, and in homilies. And these have too often been neglected as sources by patristic scholars. And in this lecture, we shall describe a number of these patristic themes or theories concerning Christ's saving work without attempting to go into the teachings of the individual fathers. They can be kept in mind when reading texts of any of the fathers and to see whether a particular father uses them and if so, what importance is given. So these themes that I will develop with you, I encourage you to keep as a reference point and as you do your reading of specific church fathers to test and see, are these themes apparent in all or most? How do different fathers in different ages pick up these themes? Are certain themes more important in one part of the church or in one context than in another? But these are threads then that will run through the apologists, the apostolic fathers, the third century fathers, as well as the later Greek and Latin church fathers. So what are some of these themes concerning Christ's saving work? The first is the theme of the father's economy or plan. A plan initiated by him out of love. A very strong theme running through the entire corpus of the church fathers. The economia in the Greek, the church fathers often make a distinction between the inner life of the Trinity and the relations of the person, some of those Trinitarian and Christological questions that we have discussed earlier, in contrast to the plan or the work of the Most Holy Trinity, the economia. So Christ's saving work and the actual salvation of mankind in and through Christ for the church fathers is the result of God the Father's plan, dispensation, or economy. Economy used in the sense of the providential rule of his creation. It is initiated by the Father out of love for mankind. And this theme is especially strong, for example, in St. Irenaeus, one of the earlier apologists, and also in the writings of 
St. Augustine, which we will look at more closely and more thoroughly in a later lecture. A second theme that runs through the corpus of the Church Fathers' writings with regard to Christ's saving work is that Christ as teacher and illuminator makes known a new way of life, imparting true knowledge about God, man, and human destiny. Now, this theme has often been overlooked by modern interpreters, but it is a strong element, especially in the earlier fathers. Christianity spread among pagans for one reason, because there was so much doubt and obscurity among them concerning life, death, and future existence, the meaning of a good life, and the way to find help to lead a good life. And I think we can see in this theme an important relevance of the Church Fathers today. For like the earliest centuries in the Christian era, we too live in a time when such questions are being asked more and more frequently. Questions concerning life, concerning death. How do we make decisions about the end of life issues? Is there any future in a materialistic world, in secular world, such as in our own? These questions cannot help but come up from the deep. And the meaning of a good life, and what does it mean to be a man or woman of virtue? Well, the Church Fathers saw in Christ the illuminator, the teacher, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so, through Christ, and being instruments of Christ, being the images, the living icons of Christ, the Church Fathers were able to impart true knowledge. And in an era of skepticism, an era of relativism, an era of doubt, how much we can learn from the Church Fathers by proclaiming with vigor, clarity, and strength the truth of who Jesus Christ is today, tomorrow, and forever. A third theme concerning Christ's saving work is that Christ's life, death, and resurrection serve as an example, or correlative to this, the imitation of Christ is the way of Christian life. And in fact, Christianity was often referred to as the way, because of course Jesus himself saying, I am the way. This theme is obviously closely connected with the preceding one of Christ being teacher and illuminator, but it makes it more concrete and explicit. Jesus brings not only a doctrine, but by his life gives a way. And I repeat what I noted in our first lecture, that one of the truly great gifts of the Church Fathers is always the integration of spirituality and teaching that they were not interested in communicating an abstract set of doctrines that demanded only intellectual assent. They were pastors, they were servants, they were most concerned with enabling and assisting their people to become holy, Christ-like, taking into themselves the very attitudes of Christ, or in the words of St. Paul, to put on Christ. Life for me means Christ. 
the Pauline teaching certainly affirmed in the understanding and teaching of this theme of the Church Fathers that Christ's life, death, and resurrection serve as an example for our own way of life. A fourth theme of the Fathers is that Christ's life, death, and resurrection, especially his death out of love and obedience, is a showing forth of God's love, moving persons to respond with faith, hope, and love. And has been said, some would see this as an exclusive or the main theme of the Church Fathers. Although this is an exaggeration, this theme is constantly present and is very important. That the great Paschal event, Christ's life, death, and resurrection, is the very heart and center of our Christian faith. But the Church Fathers always see the Paschal event in relation to the entire working out of God's salvific plan. A fifth theme is that Christ's saving work is seen as a victory over sin, over death, and over Satan. These three that are overcome, sin, death, and Satan, are always closely related to each other by the fathers. Sometimes Satan is seen more as a personification standing behind sin and death. But for the fathers, he is a very real person and force. We note, for example, in the early baptismal liturgies, the strong and poignant prayers of exorcism that are prayed over the neophytes. A sixth theme of Christ's saving work is that the incarnation itself is saving, an exchange that happens between God and humankind where we are divinized. And so, yes, Christ death and resurrection, ascension and glorification stand at the very center of Christ's saving act. Nevertheless, from the moment of his conception, each of his actions and words participate in the wonder of redemption and the fulfillment of God's saving plan. Put simply, this means that God became man, that man might become God by participation. A very oft-repeated patristic maxim. Now, to note that the Church Fathers, of course, may never be accused of pantheism. When they say that God became man so that man might become God, they are speaking by way of participation, not by essence. Mankind originally shared the divine privilege of immortality. Sin is death and brings death. But through the Incarnation itself, God becomes man. The Word divinizes human nature. The union of the natures in the person of the Word restores and elevates the human nature and destroys death. This theme is strongest in such Greek fathers as Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers, and Saint Cyril of Jerusalem. 
Undoubtedly, it is to some extent influenced by Platonic philosophy, which conceived of human nature as an idea or universal in which all individuals participate. Thus, when the word assumes and divinizes the individual human nature, every human person is affected by way of the universal human nature, the really real nature. But this theme is not simply a deduction from Platonic philosophy and is a good example of building upon and adding to the wisdom of the day because it also expresses the conviction that salvation by Christ means divinization of humankind. Moreover, these same fathers also stress the activity of Christ and his human history beyond the incarnation itself, that is, his passion, death, and resurrection, and also his teaching as part of his saving work. And this theme that indeed the incarnation itself is saving is also present in the Latin Fathers, such as Augustine, but it is less strong in the West than in the East. The Western Fathers tend to emphasize the passion and death of Christ more. Ambrose says, for example, quoting from his work on the Holy Spirit, that Although the mysteries of the assumption of the flesh and of the passion are equally admirable, the fullness of faith resides in the mystery of the passion, where Athanasius and the Eastern Fathers probably would nuance that in a way that more emphasizes the unity of the incarnation, the life, the teachings, and the events surrounding Christ's passion, death, and resurrection as forming one integral whole. Just as a side note with regard to liturgical understanding, the Latin rite has traditionally emphasized the consecration of the Mass as the moment when the transubstantiation of bread into the body of Christ and wine into the blood of Christ takes place. Where the Eastern Divine Liturgy has always emphasized the totality of the Eucharistic prayer, including the anamnesis, the epiclesis, the doxologies, the remembrances, as all being part of one consecratory event. And I think analogically here, looking at Christ's saving work, we in the West have traditionally focused more specifically on the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ, while the Eastern Church Fathers have focused more broadly on all of the aspects of Christ's life, from his conception, from his incarnation, right through to his triumphal ascension and glorification at the right hand of the Father as salvific. And this leads us to the next theme, the seventh theme, which would be that the whole life, death, passion, and resurrection of Christ are saving. By Christ as head and by others as his members, as in Christ in these mysteries. So, the entire corpus of the work of Christ is saving. And behind this theme stands the Ioannine metaphor of the vine and the branches, and even more so, the Pauline doctrine of Christ as head, in whom all things are recapitulated. The Pauline theme of Christ, sharing our human condition to the full, and saving it by raising from death humankind sharing this mysteriously or mystically, but really and truly. Saint Irenaeus, 
one of the early apologists in the Western Church, has a doctrine of recapitulation that is an early and very important expression of some aspects of this. Christ saves by living through the whole of human history, summing it up, as it were, and reordering it in himself. All is brought to completion and perfection in his resurrection. In the teaching of St. Irenaeus, for example, the theme of Christ as the new Adam, the theme of Mary as the new Eve is paramount, and it emphasizes the fact that what the first Adam and Eve brought about through the consequences of sin, all of this has now been redeemed, relived, recapitulated in the new Adam who is Christ and the new Eve who is our Blessed Mother. In other words, Christ substitutes for us. He substitutes for Adam and Eve who sinned. He substitutes for you and for me who sin. Or better, in some fathers, human persons are united to him in a mystic, real identity so that they live through these very mysteries with him. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the Cappadocian fathers, very poignantly, very profoundly, very movingly, speaks of this mystic union with Christ. And we shall see when we look at the works and teachings of St. Augustine that this theme of Christ as head and we humans as members is very highly developed. And this theme stands behind an expression that one finds in some of the fathers when they insist on the full humanity of Christ, what was not assumed in human nature cannot be repaired. This idea occurs early with respect to the flesh of Christ, and the expression itself is found in Gregory Nazianzus and later authors with respect to the human soul and the human mind of Christ. If Christ did not assume a human soul and a human mind, Gregory and others would argue that the soul and mind were not saved in human beings. The whole of human nature had to rise to glory and overcome sin and death to be saved. And this had to take place in Christ. What a profound and wonderful thought that everything that makes us human, mind, heart, psyche, soul, spirit, body, flesh, however we speak about who we are as human, all of that was assumed into the divine person of Christ through his human nature. And we know that because we are redeemed. And as the Church Fathers again remind us, that which was not assumed in human nature by Christ could not be redeemed. And this theme shows why the resurrection is considered so central to Christ's saving work and more than just a proof of his victory. For the Church Fathers and for the true living faith and tradition of the Church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ really accomplished salvation. It really accomplished salvation 
because when Christ was raised in his human nature, then every aspect of our human nature, all assumed into the person of Christ, has been raised up. How truly profound and powerful the words of our Redeemer, as I am raised up, I raise all of you with me. Another theme, the eighth of Christ's saving work and the Incarnation, is that Christ's death is an expiation or reparation for sin. The fathers, and I have mentioned Irenaeus in this context, see a link between Adam's disobedience and that of others, including ourselves, leading to death and Christ's obedience unto death. By freely accepting death out of love and obedience, Christ expiates, or we might say repairs, the offense of the disobedient Adam and his descendants who are rightly punished with death. Death, remember, is a consequence of sin. In the beginning, humankind was blessed with the gift of immortality. Through sin, death entered by one man. And of course, by one man, sin and death has been expiated or repaired. Christ chose to suffer and die on the cross, not simply because this was the way he chose, or the best way, and he himself said it is the best way. No greater love can anyone have than he lay down his life for another. But by freely choosing to accept death, even death on the cross, out of obedience to his Father, by that very act, Christ has redeemed suffering, has redeemed death. And so for all of us who experience suffering and who will ultimately experience death as part of our human existence, Christ's saving act has given a positive dimension to human suffering. In the Old Testament, we know Job asks the enduring question, why do the innocent suffer? And we who are blessed to reflect back upon the Old Testament through the eyes of the new, now see clearly that there is an answer, that the church fathers have instructed us in the answer to the perennial question of why do the innocent suffer? What is the meaning of our own suffering? What is the meaning of the suffering of those whom we love? Those who seem to be afflicted through no fault or consequence of their own. Christ is the answer. The Church Fathers remind us time and time again that he chose obedience unto death on the cross in order to redeem suffering and death. Suffering for the man or woman of faith to the extent that he or she can allow that suffering to be appropriated, to be participatory in the suffering of Christ, shares in the ultimate meaning of life, shares in the ultimate power and redemptive value of sharing intimately in the redemptive act of Christ. As St. Paul reminds us, 
We are privileged to fill up in our own bodies what is still lacking in the body of Christ. And so this profound scriptural teaching is reinforced, is developed, is accented, is affirmed in the most beautiful way by the church fathers who see in Christ's death both an expiation or reparation for sin and offering us a wonderful possibility of mystical identification with Christ. St. Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians says, For our sakes he made him to be sin who knew nothing of sin, so that in him we might become the justice of God. In all of this, there is some element of correspondence between the penalty of death owed to personal sins and the suffering and death of Jesus. But when the fathers use this correspondence, they do not do so in a way that is primarily emphasizing the justice of God or balancing the scales of justice, but rather it is part of a larger emphasis on other statements stressing Christ's love and obedience as that which really expiates and repairs. Christ's salvific act, yes, it does meet the just demands of God the Father, but the Church Fathers emphasize the mercy, the compassion of our God. And it was Christ's obedience to a loving God and his response of love to love that is the essence of expiation. A love and obedience pushed even to death, death on a cross. And so for ourselves too, our motivations of contrition of our acts of satisfaction, of our acts of penance. While involved in that is a important and a true sense of God's justice, nevertheless, there is a primary focus on obedience and love. The love and obedience given to us in Christ and the invitation for us to respond as Christ did. Another theme of Christ's saving work is that his life and especially his death was a freely accepted sacrifice. Christ as priest sacrificing his life for the salvation of all is a constant theme in the Church Fathers. There's strong scriptural background for this, as given in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, and of course the whole epistle to the Hebrews, which so powerfully manifests Christ as the one high priest. And this theme is emphasized as showing our being reconciled to the Father. But it is not limited to expiation for sin. Sacrifice includes the element of offering praise and thanks to God for his benefits to Christ. This is seen in the Fathers, for example, in the Didache, which we have already mentioned, an early document of the Church, and in Justin Martyr. And to say a few words about the priesthood with regard to Christ's life and especially his death as a sacrifice. One of the questions often discussed in our own age about the priesthood is the identity of the priest. 
And it's in this theme of Christ's saving work that the church fathers offer very clear, consoling, and direct thought on the essence of the priest. Christ's life, and especially his death, he accepted lovingly and obediently as both sacrifice and the one sacrificed. It seems to me that there can be no greater expression of the identity of priestly life than one who both sacrificed and is sacrificed at the table of the Lord. The priest is privileged to be the one who serves in persona Christi and at the same time as modeling his life on Christ the Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd who gives his life for his sheep, the one who is constantly encouraged to be sacrificed. This is my body given for you. This is my blood poured out for you. So within this theme of Christ's death as being freely accepted as sacrifice, so too the identity of the priest, a vocation freely embracing the call of Christ to sacrifice and be sacrificed, a theme that runs through many of the church fathers. Another important theme of the Church Fathers in relation to Christ's saving work in the Incarnation is that of Christ as mediator. Because Christ is seen to be both God and man, he is viewed as the mediator between the Father and the human race that has offended the Father. The bridge between the Father and humanity. God becoming man so that man can be lifted up and participate in the very divinity of God. And finally, the Church Fathers accent the subjective, our subjective entry into or our appropriation of Christ's saving work. Although this is not always explicitly stated, this appropriation by ourselves into Christ is presupposed and at times treated quite clearly. Entry into Christ's saving work is by faith, hope, love, conversion, and by the sacraments and all of the liturgy within the Christian community that we appropriate by our response to the invitation to love as Christ loved, to be obedient as Christ was obedient to the will of the Father, by our response to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by our participation in the very divinity of God through the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, by the constant call to conversion, by our being nourished and strengthened within the liturgy and the sacraments of the church. So these then present in a very full way the themes that run through the different eras of the church fathers. And I suppose that they can be drawn together perhaps by using the very strong patristic theme of Christ's Passover or Paschal victory and mystery that involves all of us. Within the Father's economy, his loving plan for all of us, sin in all of its expressions, slavery, death, ignorance, doubt, separation, disobedience, discord, despair, all are incorporated into Christ's life, death, and resurrection, his saving work. And flowing from that comes to us 
knowledge, faith, hope, love, new life, deification, new creation, adoption, immortality, reconciliation, peace, and freedom. Now, in concluding this particular section of our reflection on Christ's saving work, it may be helpful to summarize briefly the main points of the teaching of the Council of Chalcedon. As mentioned earlier, this was the Council largely relying on the thought of St. Leo the Great and St. Cyril of Alexandria brought together the Church's teaching with what we have come to recall or to acknowledge as the hypostatic union. The main points of Chalcedon are as follows. First, that Jesus Christ is only one person, the divine person, or the hypostasis of the Son of God or of the Word. So one divine person. Secondly, this one divine person subsists or exists in two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, each of which is perfect as a nature, lacking no perfection of nature. Thus, the human nature has a human soul as well as a human body. And these were united to each other, except in the three days of Christ's death, his death occurring by their separation from each other. Thirdly, the Son or Word is united to human nature not accidentally or by a moral union, but substantially. The two natures are united in his very person. Hence, theologians call it the hypostatic union, the Greek word for person being hypostasis. So, the hypostatic union. And fourthly, the perfect divine nature and the perfect human nature remain distinct from each other, although united in the person of the Word. They are in no way confused or mixed. Fifthly, because the one person exists in the two natures, the properties and activities of each nature may be correctly predicated of that one person. For example, Jesus Christ as God is eternal and creates. Jesus Christ as man suffers and dies. In certain ways, the properties and activities of each nature may even be predicated concretely by what was later called the communication of idioms or the sharing of properties. For example, can we say that God died on the cross? At first thought, this seems contradictory or absurd. But through the communication of idioms, this sharing of properties, we can say that he, the Son, who is God, died according to his human nature on the cross. And we can also therefore say that Mary is the God-bearer or mother of God. That is, he, the Son, who is God, was born in his human nature of the Virgin Mary. We can also say that this child created the universe. Why? Because he, Mary's son, who is a child and human, created the universe according to his divine nature. This was often a device used in preaching for dramatic emphasis. And at the time of the Council of Ephesus in 431, Mary, God-bearer, Theotokos, became an expression about which much discussion concerning Christ's being turned. This formulation of the 
church's understanding of the incarnation of Christ as expressed through the Council of Chalcedon balances and harmonizes two approaches to Christ. One, stressing that he has as perfect a human nature as any human. The other, that he is truly God, a divine person in the divine nature. In earlier centuries, the distinction between person and nature was not clear. Thus, each approach was liable to emphasize certain aspects and to become erroneous. For example, those of the Antioch school stressed the full humanity of Jesus. They were liable at times to see in him a human subject or person, and in explaining the union of the human and divine in Christ, they might tend to explain his oneness or unity as accidental, a union of two subjects, the divine and the human. Antioch, which was in Asia Minor, was closer to Palestine, the homeland of Jesus, than was Alexandria in Egypt, the home of the rival school. This closeness to Jesus' homeland may explain its emphasis on his humanity. Moreover, the Joannine tradition was strong in Antioch, a tradition that resisted Gnostic attempts to deny the reality of Christ's flesh. Alexandria, on the other hand, was greatly influenced by Neoplatonic philosophy. And the school of Alexandria viewed the incarnation as the words taking the human to himself. It stressed the divine person in Christ and strongly insisted on the unity of Christ. This school would run into the opposite danger of that at Antioch of minimizing the full perfection of Christ's humanity in order to assure his unity and the dominance and sinlessness of the divine person of the word. We then have become the beneficiaries of two not contradictory but complementary emphasis. And we owe a great debt of gratitude to all of the church fathers for struggling with this Christological question. How can one who is a divine person fully take on our human nature? The hypostatic union, a key development of patristic thought, confirmed and affirmed in the Council of Chalcedon, is one of the great treasures that we have received. We owe a great debt of gratitude not only in respect to our understanding of Christ's saving work in the Incarnation, but in the many doctrines, the many teachings that so enrich us as followers of Christ, as inheritors of the deposit of faith, as it was developed through the prayer, the study, the conflict that made up the patristic era in which we are the beneficiaries thereof. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.